This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Mark Friedman in loving memory of his uncle Ronald Ziegler, Peretz Ben Yosef of blessed memory. May his soul merit a spiritual ascension in heaven. Parsha's Truma has 96 verses and three mitzvot, and it has a very different vibe from any other Parsha that we've seen thus far. Essentially, the entire Parsha is dealing with the directive of God to build the Mishkan, to build the tabernacle and most of its vessels. There is no other narrative in the Parsha, and essentially reads like an architectural blueprint of the temple, you know, the the size of the walls and the fabric used for the curtains and the material used for the vessels and the dimensions. And it's much harder to try to understand what the lessons are. And the partnership begins, Hashem tells Moshe, go to the Jewish people and go on a fundraising mission to raise the materials needed for the mishkan for the tabernacle. Rashi points out that the fundraising was needed for three different pools. The first one is the pool that was selected from everyone, which is silver for the sockets at the base of the beams that are going to be upholding the walls of the tabernacle. And then there's also a separate fundraising drive to collect funds for sacrifices done for the public. And those two first fundraising drives were universal. Everyone had to give the same amount. And finally, there was the fundraising drive for the actual materials and vessels of the tabernacle that everyone was able to give whatever they decided if they wanted, and that was up to their prerogative. But it is interesting to point out that the Parsha begins with the fundraising drive, but doesn't identify why we're fundraising for. First, there's the fundraising, and soon you'll find out why. So what do we need to raise? Gold, silver, copper, various kinds of wool, turquoise wool, purple wool, scarlet, linen and goat hair, red-dyed ram skins, tachash skins. Rashi tells us that tachash is an animal that went extinct. We don't know what it is anymore, but it had multiple colors in its uh, skin. Certain kinds of cedar wood, oil, various spices, and various precious stones that were used for the vestments for the garments of the high priest. And in fact, that's not going to be discussed in detail in this week's Parsha. That's going to be the main subject of next week's Parsha. So a few things to point out here. First of all, Rashi says, where did they get uh, wood? Or after all, they're right now in a desert. They're in the wilderness. There's no forest. There's no trees, uh, at least not enough that you could have this particular kind of wood. So what's the origin of this wood? Rashi tells us something very interesting. He quotes the Midrash. The Midrash says that Jacob prophetically foresaw that in the future, the Jewish people are going to build a tabernacle in the desert. And therefore, when he came to Egypt initially, all the way back in Genesis, he brought with him some cedar wood and he planted them. And over the course of hundreds of years, the Jewish people are in Egypt, they're maintaining a supply of cedar wood because they know in the future they're going to build a tabernacle when they leave. And Jacob instructed his children to maintain that, to perpetuate that. And eventually when the people left, they took with them lots of wood and that was the wood that was used to build the tabernacle. I think this is really interesting. You know, Jacob is someone who's coming to Egypt way before the enslavement. It took many years for the Jewish people, once they were in Egypt, for all the sons of Jacob to die and and the enslavement to begin. But he's already planning not only the Exodus, but what happens after the Exodus and after God says, I'm going to make for them a tabernacle. And the commentaries point out that there's an amazing psychological comfort for the Jewish people. You know, for, for, for years, for decades, they're enslaved. And they're, they're tormented and they're persecuted and they're oppressed in every way. And every once in a while, they see the wood. And maybe that kind of jiggers this image of salvation, of redemption, of, of God saving them and actually instructing them to build a tabernacle, to be close to them. It might have provided a modicum of relief for them in their time of pain. Now, what's the point of having all these materials? So verse 8, very famous verse, they shall make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. What are we going to use these materials for? To construct, to build the sanctuary, the mishkan, the tabernacle, so that I may dwell among them. This is a very 
powerful verse. The objective of this entire edifice is so that God may dwell amongst us. And all we need to do, verse 9, like everything that I shall show you, the form of the tabernacle, the form of all its vessels, so shall you do. God is telling Moshe, and by extension the Jewish people, I'm promising if you do exactly as I tell you, you build a sanctuary as I'm about to delineate, as I'm about to describe, as I'm about to outline, you do that, I will dwell amongst you. You have to just follow the instructions to a T. Some of the commentaries compare this to medicine. If you have an expert doctor and they are able to diagnose a very complicated disease and they're able to also offer a prescription of, of, of precise details of how the person can heal themselves. Similarly, the commentaries explain this is it. God says the goal, the objective is so that I may dwell amongst you. How do you do it? How do you accomplish that? You follow everything that I command. The rest of this week's parsha and the, the rest of next week's parsha are all dedicated to the precise instructions that God initially tells them. You follow these orders and the result of God dwelling amongst us will be achieved. Now, it's not only this week's parsha and next week's parsha that talk about the tabernacle. The last two parshas in the book of Exodus, for a total of four, also detail the implementation. So this is the instruction, and then we have the implementation of the building of the tabernacle. And it's been pointed out that if you go to the beginning of the Torah, chapter 1 of Genesis, we have the description of creation of the world. And what does the Torah give us? It gives us 31 verses. And here, for the construction of the tabernacle, we have four entire partios, hundreds upon hundreds of verses. It's almost as if we could say that the Torah deemed this construction more important than the creation of the world as detailed in Genesis. And our sages tell us that truthfully, what is being constructed here is a new world. God revealed himself in creation by his handiwork, by creating the heavens and creating the earth. And the ultimate goal of Torah and the goal of humanity and the goal of existence is that we recognize God. We, rec- we can recognize God via Genesis because we look at the world that he made and we kind of find his handprint, so to, so to speak, on the world. And we can extrapolate from that his existence. And that's the benefit of Genesis. But in the tabernacle, God dwelled amongst us. And therefore, what we're describing here is a much greater level of revelation where it's not God hidden behind the veneer of Genesis. God is amongst us, and it's present, and it's undeniable, and it was a bastion, a wellspring of faith for all those people who were able to go into the temple, into the tabernacle. And therefore, the Torah is going to detail with extreme precision and elaborate upon it very comprehensively because this is the next layer in Revelation and the next step in the development of the world and in its achievement in its results. And I think there's another fundamental point here, and that is the idea of what we call Kedusha or holiness, which means essentially that there's a crossover between two opposing worlds. We believe, like many other religions do and many other faith systems do, that there's two distinct worlds. There's the physical world and then there's the spiritual world or more precisely the spiritual worlds. And these are not only not fused together initially at least, but they're actually opposing. However, the idea of holiness is that there could be a crossover, there could be touch points between these two worlds. That's what holiness means. And in fact, it works both ways. We could bring the heavens down below and we could bring the lowly ascending to heaven. So for example, we have the idea of blessings. You eat something, you make a blessing beforehand. What does eating a sandwich have to do with God? Well, that's holiness. Holiness is where we're linking the mundane, the physical, the monotonous, the habit, the rote, the physical pleasures, we're linking that with God, and we're taking the physical and we're uplifting it. And on a similar way, you know, last week's parish, we read all about cows goring each other's. Well, what does that have to do with holiness? Well, that's precisely the point. Even something which is mundane, it can be given a godly flavor via Torah and God's wisdom, and therefore we can make that holy. We could uplift that to make that those discussions to make them of the higher realms. Here it's the opposite. Here it's not us descending 
below, but God is pledging, I will, so to speak, come from the heavens and dwell amongst you. And if you go back to the very first Rashi in the Parsha, Rashi says that the fundraising drive has to be done altruistically. Today, you have buildings sponsored by this family or that family, and that's good, that's encouraged. But here, specifically with respect to the tabernacle and, and, and the holiest venue in the world where God's going to dwell, it has to be done totally, completely for the right reasons. Normally, there's a certain process. There's a way we transition to greatness. Here, something else is happening. We're not scaling upwards. God's Shekhinah, God's divine presence is descending towards us, and that process cannot have with it any scintilla of us doing things for our own benefit because then we're probably not going to be able to evoke that divine presence amongst us. Now, importantly, we're going to talk, of course, more about this in the book of Leviticus, but in the actual temple itself, there's all kinds of sacrifices, and there's animal sacrifices, and there's flower sacrifices, and there's other sacrificial activities. And we're going to discuss those, of course, later on. And in fact, we already have precedent to that. Noah brought sacrifices, Abraham brought sacrifices, etc. But specifically here, we're talking about the venue, this location in which all the activities are going to happen. And it's placed right over here. You know, we had the Exodus, and we had the splitting of the sea, and we had, of course, Sinai. And right afterwards, we have the laws, and go back to Sinai, that was last week's parsha. And here we start talking about this venue, this mishkan, this tabernacle. So what is the idea behind the tabernacle, and specifically, why now? Why is it given to us, almost interlinked, immediately following sequentially the the, the, the Torah being given at Sinai? What is the con- connection? What is the continuation? What is the continuum that we find with the mishkan being instructed to us immediately after. So this is a subject of discussion amongst almost all the commentaries. I want to offer a selection of ideas to understand this. So most of the commentaries talk about the idea of a certain relationship being formed at the Exodus and at Sinai. And here, the permanent dwelling for God amongst us is a continuation of that relationship. So God spoke to us face-to-face. He gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us a variety of mitzvot already. And we're, so to speak, changing who we are. We are making a covenant with God. And God's making pledges back to us. If we listen to his word and we hearken his voice and we obey his mitzvot, he'll love us, he'll take care of us, he'll guard us, he'll send the angel in front of us, we'll be a treasured people, we'll be a holy nation, we'll be a kingdom of priests. There's this bilateral relationship. We're making commitments, we're making pledges, God is returning. Here, we have this point of unity where God commands us to build this edifice that will be a place in which this relationship will be most epitomized. And the Ramban goes on to explain that the Mishkan essentially was a portable Sinai. At Sinai, he points out, there were two ideas present. A, the presence of God at Sinai, and be the prophecy. And both of those elements are found in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, people would go there and the presence of God would be palpable and present to all. In addition, Moses, for the duration of the Torah, Moses is prophesying. Where's the prophecy occurring? It's occurring specifically in what's called the Ohel Moed, which means the tent of meeting, but that's just another name for the Mishkan. And therefore, the prophecy that was given to the Jewish people at large, but specifically to Moshe at Sinai, that continued via the Mishkan post facto for the rest of the 40 years of Jewish people's time in the wilderness and the rest of the story of the Torah. So this is the idea that Ramban says that the that the Mishkan is the, is the portable Sinai, it's the continuation of Sinai and the relationships created at Sinai. There's a very famous midrash here that gives an amazing illustration, similar kind of idea to the the Ramban. He says uh, an analogy, a parable of a king who had one daughter that was so beloved to him. And eventually the time came for the daughter to get married. And one of the other kings, a prince, someone worthy of such a marriage came and he married her. And after the festivities were over, that prince, that new son-in-law of the king, wanted to go back to his land and take his wife with him. 
And the father, the king said, well, the daughter that I gave you, she's the only one that I have in the world. And I cannot depart from it. But I can tell you to not take your wife. She's your wife after all. Rather, do me this favor. When you go back to your palace, make a small room for me so I could live together with you. Why? Because I cannot abandon my daughter. Similarly, says the Midrash, the Almighty told the Jewish people, I gave you the Torah. I cannot depart from it. The Torah is like my only daughter. I can't depart from it, but I cannot tell you not to take it. And therefore, wherever you go, wherever you travel, have a small house, have a small room where I could live. And that's what it says in our verse, made for me a mitdash, made for me a portable place, a, a guest room where I could be with you. Fantastic idea. The holy Torah that we have, it's like the only daughter of God. And God says that on one hand, it's ours. He gave it to us. On the other hand, he cannot depart it. And therefore, specifically after Sinai, we got the Torah, we got the Almighty, so to speak, proverbial only daughter. He can't depart from it. And therefore, he tells us, build me the Mishkan so that I could always be together with you. And I think, of course, there's a few ways we could interpret this. So for one, and this is a theme that we find throughout Jewish literature, the relationship the Jewish people have with Torah is the same relationship that a husband has with a wife. It's a certain intimate connection, a very deep connection that we have with Torah. It's, so to speak, the quote-unquote daughter of God that we, so to speak, married at Sinai. But in addition, the Talmud tells us something very interesting in the book of Brachas, page 8a. It says, well, what happens once the temple is destroyed? After all, God says, I gave you my only daughter— And it's yours now, but I can't depart from her. But now the temple is gone. So the Talmud says, from the day that the temple was destroyed, the only place in which the Shekhinah does dwell, that's only within the four cubits of Torah. Where people are studying Torah, that creates with it a virtual mishkan, a virtual tabernacle in which God's presence comes. And then he indeed is not abandoning his only daughter. One of the other commentaries, he kind of presents the connection between Sinai and the tabernacle in almost the opposite way. And he quotes from the end of Parshas Yisro two weeks ago, we read right after Sinai, right after the Ten Commandments, there's a verse that says that God pledges wherever you call out God, he's going to be there. He's going to be close to us. The Sepharno, one of the commentators, he says that prior to the sin of the golden calf, wherever we would call out to God... He would be there with us. Now, once the Jewish people send the golden calf, and by the way, there's an entire discussion as to whether this Parsha, Parsha's Truma, actually chronologically precedes the golden calf story. Most opinions are that it indeed does. So this is being told to us after the golden calf story. And now we're almost limited. Previously, the entire world, so to speak, would be a portable Mishkan. We call it to God and he's there. And now God is limiting his presence. He's only going to be in this world within the confines of the tabernacle. And like we said earlier, the majority of the parasha is going to deal with instructions of the tabernacle, and it's going to seem very foreign, very odd, but we have to remember verse 9 here that these are the instructions that God is pledging. You do this, it comes from God, trust in him, he knows what he's doing, and he's giving us the exact formula to achieve the result of that he dwelling among us. And it's also important for us to note, we're really novices. We're trying to understand the discussions of the most sophisticated pathologies and nuanced and subtle remedies. We're trying to remedy the fact that the world is flawed, so to speak, that God is not here. And we don't really have the framework to understand the ABCs. And therefore, it's important for us to keep this in mind that we're going in, so to speak, blind. We don't really know why A leads to B, why exactly the tabernacle leads to God's presence, but we have to accept it, so to speak. He's the proverbial doctor, and he's giving us those instructions. And maybe that would answer the question of why the fundraising happens before the instruction. You know, the partial begins with fundraising. We haven't even told anyone what the goal is. What are we trying to raise money for here? And it kind of fits into this idea. God wants us to trust him, And we have to give, so to speak, even before we know what he wants to use it for, because that's the essence of what's happening here. He's telling us this is what we need, and we have to trust him, and we're almost going in blindly. Okay, so verse 10, we start talking about the actual vessels in the tabernacle. And it's important to note that 
we haven't yet actually built the facility. We haven't discussed about building the facility, and we're talking already with the ark, which is going to be included in the facility. So first of all, you know, if you have a museum, first you build the building, and then you put in the displays. Here it's presented in the other way around. We talk about the ark, the vessel that goes in the tabernacle, and we talk about the shulchan, the table, and the menorah, and only then do we start talking about the actual venue itself, the tabernacle itself. And the commentaries explain that in actuality, what was built first, more logically, was the actual building itself, and then the ark, and then everything else that went inside of it. But the purpose of the tabernacle is to have a resting spot for the divine presence in our world. The essence of that, the touch point of that, the epitome of the zenith of God's presence in the world is specifically in the ark, or more precisely between the cherubs on top of the ark. And therefore, it is commanded to us first, but in actuality, once it's, at, once it's actually built in chapter 20, 35 and in chapter 35 and chapter 36, it's built in more of a logical order. First, you build the building and then you put in the displays. So what's the nature of the ark? You make it out of wood and it has two and a half cubits its length. So cubit is important uh, dimension to know. A cubit is an ama. It's the length of an elbow to the end of the fingertips. It's a discussion exactly how big it is. Is it 18 inches? Is it 23 inches? But this is the size, the measurement that is used um, here in the description of the building of the tabernacle. It's an ama or a cubit, and that's roughly the length. So the art is made out of wood, Two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So it's made out of wood, but we find out in the next verse that you cover with pure gold. From within and from without, you cover it. And you should make a gold crown around it. So what does this actually look like? So we find out from Rashi and others that in actuality, there was three different boxes, two of gold and one of wood. And on the bottom, you put the gold... And then in between, you put the wood, and then covering the wood, you have the gold. Thus, in actuality, you don't actually see any of the wood because it's covered on bottom and on top by other boxes made of gold. And it's surrounded by a crown. And Rashi already points out that there's a certain symbolism here that there's something called the crown of Torah. And as we shall read a little bit later on, the ark is going to symbolize Torah and Torah greatness. And in fact, the Torah scholar himself. And therefore, a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the meaning behind what we're, at least we're supposed to take out of the ark is related to that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, on the sides of the ark, you have gold rings, and in the gold rings, you put the poles, the staves of wood that are plated in gold, and they're stuck into the ring. So these are the poles ostensibly used to carry the ark, one on each side. So you have four rings, and in each set of two rings, you have one pole. And those poles can never be taken out of the ark, so you can never remove them and have the ark just as a box without the holes. And on top of it, you have the cover with the cherubs. And the Torah points out that these are all hewn from a single block of gold. You have one huge block of gold, and you take a hammer and a chisel, and you hew out of that the images, these golden angel-like winged children, one male and one female. You hew them out of that block of gold, and that's going to comprise the cover on top of the ark. Now, the idea of these cherubs sounds kind of perplexing. They don't seem to have an obvious function. And in fact, they do kind of seem to be these images that we were warned about so stridently in the Ten Commandments. In fact, we did see at the end of Parshish Yisro that if instead of two cherubs, there were four cherubs, or instead of being made out of gold, it was made out of silver, it would be considered idolatrous. So the idea of these cherubs, it's straddling the line of idolatry pretty closely. And if not for the fact that God instructed us to do it, we would never do it. So what can possibly be the lesson behind these cherubs, these these images of gold, of a male and a female child, but they look like an angel with these wings. What do we make out of that? So 
many interpretations by the commentaries. I want to offer a few of them. So the Rambam tells us that these cherubs are about the belief not only in God, but the exist- in the existence of angels. And of course, this is the subject of a much larger discussion. But briefly speaking, the idea of angels is that there is forces through which divine vitality and even prophecy filters down to us. And that's why uh, the commentaries add there's two cherubs, not one, to not conflate the cherubs with God. It's, there's only one God, but there's multiple angels, and therefore there's multiple cherubs. That's one idea. Another idea is that the cherubs, they're facing each other, and almost like they're hugging each other, and that's to show that the, God loves us like the love of the male and the female, the most closest, most intimate love that we can fathom, God's like that with us. And therefore, specifically at this touch point where our nation and God, so to speak, the, the, the symbolism of this relationship, we have the, the boy cherub, the girl cherub hugging each other, so to speak, and displaying the love that God has for us. And the Talmud, in fact, tells us that during the pilgrimage, during the high holy days, during the festivals, Jewish people all come to Jerusalem and they would pull away from the curtain, blocking the ark, and the entire nation would see the cherubs hugging each other and everyone would say, wow, look how much God loves us. It's incredible love, like the love of a male to a female. And our sages tell us something really cool, that these cherubs would be reflective of the relationship that the Jews have with the Almighty. If we were not listening to God, then there would be smoke erupting from between them, and they would actually swivel and face away from each other. However, if we were doing the will of the Almighty, they would face each other and their faces would shine. Of course, that would be a very powerful lesson for people that had the merit to see it. So we have the art, we have the dimensions, we have the materials, we have the cover, and inside we place the tablets, a little bit more about what we're going to place inside the art in a little bit towards the end of the Parsha. And I think it's it's worthwhile to circle back and talk about some of the themes of the commentators regarding the art. So... Uh, like we mentioned earlier, the Torah scholar is comparable to the ark. So the Talmud tells us that there's actually three different crowns. There's a crown of the altar, which is going to be the inner altar, not the outer altar. There's the crown of the table, and there's the crown of the ark. And these represent the three offices of greatness that we have in our nation. The crown that goes around the altar, well, that refers to the priesthood. And the priesthood, well, Aaron got that, Aaron and his children. The crown surrounding the table, that refers to the monarchy, to the kingdom, to prosperity, and that was taken by David. And that's not available for anyone else. However, the greatest crown of them all, the crown of the ark, that is available for everyone who wants. That's the crown of Torah. Anyone who wants to come could go and take it. And don't think... That the other two crowns are greater? No. The crown of the art, the crown of Torah, is greater than the other crowns. There's a primacy accorded to the ark over the, all the other vessels. And, and therefore, what is still possible to be achieved via merit is greater than everything else that we could be given by inheritance. And the Talmud even points out that someone who studies Torah is greater than the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies. That quotes the verse, Yikarahim Epninim, which literally means Torah is more precious than pearls, but the word Pninim also means inner or inner sanctums. Says the Talmud, the Torah is more precious than the high priest who enters the most inner sanctums of the temple. And the reason for this is that the high priest, on Yom Kippur, enters into the Holy of Holies, and goes to the Ark. But the Torah scholar, he himself is comparable to the Ark. He's there all the time. He has the Torah within them, just like the Ark has the Torah represented by the tablets, both the broken set and the unbroken set of tablets. So too, the the Torah scholar is like the Ark because they have the Torah within them. And along these lines, we mentioned that the, the Ark is made out of gold, inside and outside, even though it has some wood. 
And the commentaries add that a true Torah scholar, what exists internally has to be reflective of what is displayed externally. We have to have the Torah penetrate inwardly. We can't just be gold on the outside, but corrupt on the inside. The internal behavior, how we are internally, has to match how we are externally. Just like the arts, that gold inside, gold gold outside, so too the Torah scholar has to be rolled inside and outside. And then we read about the poles. There's two poles that are supporting the ark. Well, what does that refer to? Those refer to the people that, so to speak, uphold the ark and, by extension, the people that uphold Torah. And the commentaries note that we're told specifically about the poles that are upholding the ark. They can never be taken out of the rings. They can never depart from the ark itself. And the idea behind this is that someone who is a Torah supporter, they become linked to the Torah itself. It's like almost as if their Torah, they cannot be discounted. They cannot be severed from the Torah. You can never pull out the poles because once someone supports the Torah, they're cleaving to Torah and they become part of it. Our sages also tell us that the ark lifted those that lifted it. When the priests were carrying the ark, They weren't really carrying it. The ark was really carrying them. That's number one. Another miracle that our sages tell us happened with the ark is that it did not take up any space. If you were to measure the size of the Holy of Holies, it's 10 amos by 10 amos. It's 10 cubits by 10 cubits. If you were to measure how much room was on each side of the ark, it would equal a grand total of 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And the way the Talmud describes it is that the ark did not take up any place. And these two qualities, these two characteristics are another element of the Ark, but also of Torah, and that is the idea of humility. Someone who's humble is lifting other people. Someone, of course, who's arrogant is pushing other people down. The Ark lifted those that lifted it. The people that thought were lifting it were really being held up by the Ark. Similarly, for someone to be a vessel of Torah, they have to have humility. They cannot be taking up all the space, so to speak, in the room. They have to uplift those that are around them. So that's the Ark. And then we read about the table, the shulchan. And again, this is made out of wood, but it is plated in gold. It's two cubits by one cubit. A cubit and a half is its height. It has also a crown going around it. It too has four rings, one in each corner. And in each set of two rings, there is a pole going through it. Again, a pole of wood covered in gold. And that's how you carry the table And there's various other paraphernalia in it. There's dishes, there's spoons, there's shelves, pillars that are upholding it from either side. It's kind of hard to describe. In fact, in many of the new editions of the Chumash, you see pictures of it. It makes it a little bit more understandable. But on top of this table, there's the lechem upon him, the showbreads. These are breads that are baked once a week. They stay in the table for a week, and then they're consumed by the priests. And if the Ark was referencing Torah and Torah greatness and the Torah scholar, the table refers to the monarchy, but also to prosperity. And the Ramban says something very interesting here. He says that these showbreads that were held up by the table were actually a beachhead for God's goodness in matters of prosperity. And he says a very deep point. He says that God no longer creates something out of nothing, ex nihilo. Everything that God is going to contribute to the world, so to speak, is going to be something out of something else. There has to be something that we do, that we contribute towards effectuating God's plenty. And therefore, you put bread in it. And again, this is 12 loaves of bread. It's not really a lot of bread, But through this means we contribute, so to speak, a little bit. We bake 12 loaves of bread, and that gives God's prosperity that he wants to shower upon us. It gives something to latch upon. And once we do something, that could be a receptacle, that could be a beachhead for God's goodness and God's prosperity he wants to give us to spread over the entire nation. And then we read about the third vessel, the menorah, hammered again out of pure gold. And this menorah looks very similar to the menorah we light on Hanukkah. It's got, it's like a candelabra. It's got one middle branch with with a cup 
of oil lit on top, and then our menorah has four coming out of each side. This one had only three coming out of its side. And like we said, this is hewn out of a single block of gold. It's not made separately and attached afterwards. And we read a little bit later on that the menorah, including all of its paraphernalia, like the tons used to pull out the wicks and the spoons used to clean out the cups, were all made from a talent of gold, roughly 150 pounds of gold. And, and in verse 31, we read that Moshe is told to make the menorah, and then the menorah shall be made. So Rashi tells us that Moshe tried to make it, but ultimately it was made. God, so to speak, made it. He tried it, was unsuccessful, and God made it. And I think this is a good lesson. A good rule of thumb is that even if someone cannot do it, they won't necessarily be given godly assistance unless they put in their best effort. So Moshe tried it. He was unsuccessful, but only then did God, so to speak, come in to finish the job. And the Torah describes the menorah, it's got decorative cups, it's got knobs, it's got flowers, it has a base, and each of the flames, the three on the right and three on the left, are going to be directed towards the middle one. And the commentaries explain that the menorah is symbolic of a certain unity of purpose. We have the things on the right, we have the things on the left, we have the intellect, we have the action, we have all various aspects of our essence and of, and of our spiritual activities, they don't have to be united towards the middle, towards God. So we've had now three of the vessels, the ark, the table, and the menorah. We haven't yet had description of the actual tabernacle itself. And chapter 26 begins with the covers of the tabernacle. We're going to read about three or maybe even four different covers on the tabernacle. These are going to be covering the walls, which have not yet been described. And the first of the covers is going to be made out of 10 curtains, and each one of those curtains is going to be used with a special yarn, a yarn made out of linen, out of turquoise, out of purple, and out of scarlet wool. Rashi quotes from the Talmud that each one of these four materials, the linen, the blue, purple, and scarlet wool, each one of those Yarns was comprised of 24 different strands, six strands of each, so six strands of linen, six strands of blue wool, purple wool, and scarlet wool, twisted into a thread, and those four threads making up the yarn, and that was woven in a way that different images appear on either side. And we're told that there's a total of four different images on either side of this first cover. There's going to be images of cherubs, images of a lion, of an ox, and of an eagle. And the commentaries explain these are also very similar to the visions of the chariot visualized by Ezekiel. And this material is going to be used to make 10 different curtains, each one of them of the same size, 28 by 4 cubits. So two of five apiece. So each one of these curtains is going to be 28 by 20 cubits. And at the edge of each one of these two curtains, each one of them comprised of five different curtains, you have 50 loops made out of blue wool and 50 gold hooks connecting the two. So what you end up with is one huge curtain comprised of 10 separate curtains are really two sets of five connected with these gold hooks. And this is going to be draped over the walls of the Mishnah. So the total length is 40 by 28. And the 40 is going to go the length of the tabernacle. And the 28 is going to cover the width of the, of the tabernacle. And we'll see a little bit later on that the tabernacle itself is going to be 30, almost 30 cubits by 10 cubits. And thus you're going to have the entrance on the east side is going to be exposed. And 30 are going to cover the length of the tabernacle. The extra 10 are going to drape down the back side. And Rashi is going to explain how they were draped over the walls of the Mishkan. It's going to leave two Amos exposed on the bottom, two cubits exposed on the bottom, which are going to be the silver sockets. It's a little complicated to figure out exactly how this works out, but uh, I advise everyone to take a look at some of the pictures to make it a little bit more understandable. So that's the first curtain. Then there's a second curtain made out of goat hair. This is not 10 separate curtains that are going to be sewn together. It's 11 separate ones, and this is going to be covering the first one. And it's going to be a little bit longer on each side, and thus it's going to cover 
one more ama, one more qubit, and it's going to leave only the silver sockets at the bottom of the t- beams exposed. So you're going to have beams making a wall, the walls of the tabernacle, and you're going to have covered over, draped over it, the roof, so to speak, and covering the sides of the beams are going to be these two curtains. First, the curtain made out of wool, the three, kind, three kinds of wool and linen, and then the second curtain of goat hair. Now, the first curtain is going to be really two mega curtains of five apiece, and the second one is going to be one of six and one of five, and it's going to also drape over the entrance by two amos. It's going to be 44 feet long, 44 amos long instead of 40, so that there are two extra going to cover the back, covering the entirety of the western wall, and the two in the front are going to be extra, and they're going to be draping down the entrance, and Rashi explains this is going to cover the tabernacle a little bit like a bride. Now, it is interesting that you have the more beautiful one of the curtains is going to be covered over by the goat here one, the one that's a little bit less beautiful. Why? So Rashi tells us there's a very valuable lesson for us, and that is that we need to conceal the things that are beautiful, or at least to be careful with the things that are beautiful. This is a good lesson. If you have something very beautiful, you cover it up. You have the most beautiful curtain, the most beautiful cover, you cover it up with the one that's a little bit less beautiful to preserve, so to speak, the more beautiful one. And finally, we read about the next curtain or curtains, and that is a third curtain, which does not drape over the walls. Rather, it covers just the top, just the roof of the tabernacle. So it's just 30 cubits by 10 cubits. And that is made either of a combination of red dyed ram skins and tachash skins. Alternatively, Rashi brings the second opinion, and that is that there were two separate ones for a total of four covers, one of red-dyed ram skins and one of tachash skins. Next, we read about the actual walls of the tabernacle, and this is going to be, again, made out of wood, the same wood that was preserved by Jacob, and these are going to be held up vertically. So we have uh, planks of wood held up vertically. You have 20 along one side, which is the length. Each one of these planks of wood is going to be a, a cubit and a half. So for a total of 30 cubits, 20 planks, one and a half a piece. And the other wall is going to be 10 cubits wide. And the way these things are held together is that on the bottom of the planks of the beams, you have protruding tenons. You have these pieces of wood that are sticking out like uh, like two fingers, and it's going to be held on the bottom with a socket made out of silver. On top, you're going to have each neighboring plank of wood is going to be held together with square rings to bind the two beams together. And the commentaries note that these walls are vertical. They're not horizontal. So some of the commentaries explain that that's the essence, essentially, of the tabernacle. It's creating a horizontal relationship. It's creating a bind between the heaven and the earth, man and God. Alternatively, the Talmud tells us that when it says that they're omdim, that they stand, it's another way of saying that they lasted. These wooden beams actually lasted for thousands of years, and they didn't rot, as you may expect, over the course of the centuries. And it's been suggested that after all, these cedar woods were planted by Jacob, they were effused with a certain special eternal power and holiness that would not atrophy. So we have the vertical beams held in place on the bottom with silver sockets and on top connected to the neighboring beams with square rings. It's also held in place by bars. There's going to be five bars running horizontally on the outside of these beams. So if you were inside the Mishkan, if you're inside the, the tabernacle, you wouldn't see any bars, but only if you're outside. There's going to be rings held up on the side of the beams, and through the rings, there's going to be poles. And there's going to be five on each side, two on the top and two on the bottom, meeting halfway. And there's going to be one, the Bria Chatichon, the internal one that's going to be threading a hole cut in the middle of the beams. And the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 98b, tells us that this was really a miracle that this one internal pole actually went from end to end. So it went down one direction. It turned the corner, so to speak, and went through the other direction. 
and then I made another right turn towards the end. So the entire 30 amos on one side, 10 on the other side, and 30 amos on the other side, it was all threaded by the same pole turning corners. Pretty cool. And the chapter ends with the two partitions that are also made in the tabernacle. You have one partition separating the holy of holies from the holy. So like we said, there's 30 amos by 10 amos, 30 cubits by 10 cubits. The last 10 by 10 is going to be the holy of holies in which we're going to have the ark. And that's separated from the other 20 by 10, which by a parochas, by a partition. So we're told to make a partition of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, and again with linen. So this is the same material used to make that lower cover on top of the tabernacle. And that is held up in place by four pillars of wood plated with gold and with hooks of silver upholding the curtain. And there was also a second partition, maybe called a screen, separating the entire tabernacle from the rest of the courtyard of the mission of the tabernacle, where the main altar for sacrifice was located. That partition separated the tabernacle itself from the rest of the world around it, from the rest of the courtyard of the tabernacle. Now, the commentaries note that there were at least three differences between the two curtains, the curtain separating the holy from the holy of holies, one part of the mishkan, one part of the tabernacle from the other part, and the curtain separating, the partition separating the tabernacle itself from the world around it. Number one is that the manner in which these were embroidered were different. The inner one was embroidered in a way that it had different images on either side, whereas the outer one was embroidered with the Im- in a way that the images were identical on either side. The one internally was held up by four pillars, and it had silver sockets, and the one that was outside was held up by five pillars that had copper sockets. And the commentaries explain all the symbolism behind it and all the meaning behind it. Just as an example, what was the image on the inner curtain, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle? It had pictures of cherubs, alternatively various animals, but it's called cherubs in the Torah. And cherub, again, is another nickname for, for an angel. So one of the commentaries tells us that unless someone is angelic, they shouldn't enter. Only the high priest. On Yom Kippur, someone who's really like an angel, again, wears only white, doesn't wear any gold, only someone like that is able to walk in and not be blown away by the holiness of the location. And the verse goes on to tell us what was included in each one of these venues. So you have the menorah, and the shulchan, the menorah, and the table that are outside of the Holy of Holies. Next week, we're going to read about the third vessel that was placed in the tabernacle, and that is the incense offering, or alternatively called the inner altar. And then you have in the Holy of Holies, you have, of course, the ark, along with its cover and the cherubs. And you also have, like we said earlier, the tablets, both the broken tablets and the one that were not broken. In addition... All the way at the end of Deuteronomy, Moshe is going to write a a copy of the Torah scroll that's going to be preserved in the Ark for posterity. In addition, we read a few weeks ago that Moses tells Aaron to take a jar of manna that was also kept not inside the Ark but next to it. There's going to be a vial of anointing oil And a little bit later on in the book of Numbers, we're going to read about Aaron's staff that sprouted almonds and flowers. That, too, is going to be placed for posterity next to the ark. Chapter 27, we read about the altar. Now, this is not the inner altar. This is the outer altar. This is the much larger altar made of wood and plated with copper. And this is the altar on which sacrifices are going to be offered. You have an altar, and then you have a ramp leading up to the altar. And Rashi points out that this is slightly different than the one used in the temple, but the one in the temple is modeled after this with slight variations. So, of course, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is going to be used by the Jewish people for hundreds of years until Solomon's going to build the first permanent temple, and the permanent temple is going to have a different altar. 
And Rashi also points out that the ramp is not mentioned, but it's hinted earlier. At the end of Parshat Yisro, we read that there should be a ramp leading up to the altar, not stairs, because if you have stairs, it could re- reveal some of your private parts. And it's called the earthen altar because it was hollow and it was filled with earth, alternatively, it's filled with stones. Now, one of the commentaries points out that there's miracles that happened on this altar related to the four elements of fire, water, wind, and earth. The first miracle relates to fire, and that is that even though the fire was lit upon the altar at all times, day and night, and the altar was plated with copper, and what happens when fire comes into contact with copper, it starts to ruin it, but the copper was not ruined. That's the first miracle relates to fire. The second miracle is that even though the altar was exposed, because again, this is outside of the tabernacle, in the tabernacle courtyard, it doesn't have those four or three covers protecting it from the elements. So water rains down upon the pyres on top of the altar, and it does not get extinguished. In addition, the smoke went straight up, and the wind did not blow the smoke. And finally, there is also earth filling in the hollow parts of the altar. So essentially, you have all four of these elements represented in the altar, and these four elements are the same elements that comprise man, and this is coming to hint to us that when we mess up, when we sin, we bring a sacrifice on this altar, and that provides us atonement. And the Parsha concludes with a description of the courtyard. This is not the tabernacle itself, but it's the courtyard that is surrounding the tabernacle. This is a fence that goes around the courtyard of the temple. The entire length of this, the the entire size of this courtyard is 100 amos by 50 amos, so slightly smaller than a football field, just to kind of get a little sense of the size of this. And we're all, we also read about the positioning of the tabernacle in the courtyard. The tabernacle is positioned in the inner half of that 100 by 50 ama enclosure. And we read also about the surrounding material used to make that fence, the size of the fence, the height of the fence, the material used. Every five amos, every five cubits, there's another beam holding up curtains. And there's also a curtain at the entrance. And thus concludes our parsha. We read about the tabernacle and kind of reviewing backwards, you have the courtyard, and then you have the altar that goes outside of the Mishnah, which is in the courtyard, outside the tabernacle, which is in the courtyard, the walls of the tabernacle, the materials used uh, to hold up those walls, vertical beams, horizontal poles, sockets on bottom, rings on top, the vessels inside the tabernacle, the partition separating the various parts of the tabernacle, and the covers on top of it. In next week's Parsha, we're going to move on to another element of the tabernacle, and that is the garments and the vestments of the high priest, and some more of the vessels in the tabernacle itself.